and welcome to episode 30 of Unmasking the Abuser, the podcast. I'm Dr. Dina McMillan, and this is the only podcast that will show you in specific detail how unfair influence, persuasion, and manipulation are done by a potential romantic partner or by anyone else. Now, we have a special episode today where we talk to a woman with lived experience of severe abuse. She's turned that experience into activism to help other people. Let's listen. I can't remember the last time I got so excited after meeting someone and thought immediately, oh my goodness, I have to share her with my podcast audience. You're just amazing. So I'm going to let you do most of the talking, but I wanted to ask, start with one question. Why do you call yourself A instead of using a name? Well, that's because I have learned how to feel safe and vulnerable at the same time, because I'm sharing my very vulnerable story, knowing that I may not be safe in doing so. And therefore, instead of giving my personal information, (laughs) I am choosing to go by initials and hopefully, you know, give some sort of courage and insight to other people that may feel that same urge to share their story to help others, but not quite sure on how to do that with being safe. And so I'm choosing to go with A. Garcia for that reason. Oh, well, welcome. And thank you for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to talk to me today and to talk to the audience. And please share with us the what you said to me about who you are, your journey, and how you're helping other women. Because that's why I was so excited to get you on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. So I can start from childhood, honestly, because it's almost textbook. And I would love to share some of that. So basically, I was brought into this world involuntarily, like most. And my mother during her time of pregnancy with me, you know, she was married to my father and was in a violent relationship. And she stayed, she had another child. And it was shortly after the birth of her second child that she realized she didn't want to stay in that environment. And so she packed her bags and left. When she packed her bags and left, me and my baby sister were not in those bags. We were left in that environment that she fled from. So shortly after her parting ways, my sister was diagnosed with cancer. And back then they didn't have all the technology and research that they have today. So her life was taken very quickly within a matter of eight months. So as you can imagine, my life as a child quickly inherited every void possible. No mother, the loss of a a sibling, my only sibling, and a checked out dad. And so I understand today that my dad was probably coping to the best of his ability in his young 20s losing his wife, losing his baby girl, and then looking at me. So nobody back then really checked mental health. Mental health really wasn't a thing. So nobody really checked him on how he was handling or coping. So it was more along the lines of me being exposed to almost everything a normal parent would protect their child from. So... In my elementary school years, I was already delivering newspapers, cleaning houses, washing cars, pulling weeds, babysitting while moms took showers and cooked. And I did that to put peanut butter and jelly in the kitchen for myself. My dad worked third shift. He slept all day. So his life was while I was sleeping. It was very opposite. And so later in my teenage years, I already felt like I had a work ethic. I already felt like I knew the neighborhood. I could get around wherever I wanted. Remember a newspaper route and then all these work ethics. So I found myself in a 
teen dating uh, violent relationship and it was bad. It was real bad. But this was the first guy that gave me attention and I felt so in love and I was young and dumb. I dropped out of high school in my early teenage years. I was a um, teenager that gave birth. And when it got to the point where my daughter was born, I realized, gosh, after six years of being with this guy, uh, this is it. I'm not doing this. I'm not repeating any patterns that either one of my parents did. And I'm going to be that, that chain breaker, that, that person that breaks those links. And so I did pack my bags and I, I, and I did make sure my daughter was in those bags and we left and we went to a place that most people would not even look at a basement that had no heat, brick walls, cement floor, no kitchen, but I made it work, you know, peace of mind and the ability to create your own environment is by far the most rewarding thing that you can possibly do. And so fast forwarding some more, I went back to get my GED. I started working full time and I was raising my daughter on my own. The father was in trouble on the street and he ended up leaving the States, which to me felt like a relief. However, it really wasn't because I also dealt with the in-laws. Um, and that was, a, that's a whole nother story. However, it was, it was not the easiest. <laughs> and so on my last day of my GED class, I was told that you, we could sign up for college and that tomorrow was the last day to sign up for college. And I was like, oh yeah, I need to do this. I, I know I need to do this. I need to provide. I'm by myself. I have no mother. My father is long gone. I have no siblings and I'm all that my baby has. And so I did. And it was eight years in the making that I'm raising her by myself, that I'm working a full-time position, that I'm in school. I finally got out of, you know, the neighborhood that wasn't so good. Um, I set myself up to where I had a solid support system. The school that my daughter went to was across the street. My job was four blocks west. My babysitter was four blocks east. Even if my car broke down, I would be able to make it to work. She'll be able to make it to school. I, I had it all figured out. So then here comes Mr. Wright. <laughs> oh, boy. And we dated for a couple of years. <laughs> and it was the last thing on my mind. I wasn't even thinking about anything other than my career, my degree, raising my daughter, you know, and I was pregnant again. And so we decided to, you know, make be more serious, expand the family. He was offered a position on the other side of the United States. And he asked if I would be open to moving with him. And I was like, of course, that's like, that's like the number one success story, uh, leaving the, the neighborhood, right? Getting out. <laughs> and so he went first to get acclimated. I flew out a couple times. Quick question. Were you married to him? No, I was not. Okay. No, I was not. And so he flew out and, uh, you know, got acclimated with the job. And when it was time to look for a place, I went out a couple of times to, you know, find an, a decent neighborhood and be comfortable with all of that. And so I would say he was out there about four months before I got there. And I timed everything perfectly. I waited for my daughter's spring break, which was the perfect time for my semester to be over and to give, you know, notice to the job and to pack all the stuff and oh, all that. So about three and a half to four weeks after I arrived to the new state was when our personal belongings arrived. And so for that first four weeks, you know, I was getting my daughter settled in school, getting to know the, the area, meeting my new doctors. By this time, I'm eight months pregnant. And when I was putting my personal belongings away, I came across remnants of another woman. And I was like, okay, you've got to be kidding me. My eyeballs are popping out of my head. My chest, my heart is pumping through my chest. And I'm like, oh my gosh, don't tell me that this is something that I, I left everything for. And I'm thinking like, did he have family? Did he have friends? Was there some sort of, you know, gathering? Just think, think, think before I start assuming the worst. And so... I was speechless pretty much all day. Obviously, my brain is just scattered all over. And I 
pursued the day as normal. I picked up my daughter from school, made dinner, cleaned the house afterwards, got her ready for bed. I waited until it was late at night and said, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> I could not hold it in. I said, you know, while I, while I was putting my belongings away, I came across the remnants of another female. I'm trying to figure out where this came from. I need you to talk to me. And I was immediately greeted with an accusation of going through his personal belongings. And I said, okay, maybe you didn't hear me. I wasn't going through your stuff. I'm putting my stuff away. And this is what I found. And before I was able to repeat myself, he already had knocked me to the floor. He was sitting on my pregnant stomach, straddling me, sitting on there with his left hand around my neck and his right hand closed fist punching me to the head over and over and over. And I'm squirming and I'm squirming. And then I hear my daughter's voice. <gasps> Mom. Yes, I heard her voice. Mom. Mom. A voice that I've never heard in that tone, like a, an actual scared voice of my daughter. And as soon as it registered in my brain, I literally reacted within two to three seconds. I just said, that's my daughter. And my feet slammed on the floor and my hips thrusted towards the ceiling while my neck is being used as a kickstand. He rolls over the top of me. I have no idea how I popped up on my feet so fast. I ran around the couch. I grabbed her little hand as she was taking the last step off the bottom stair. And we ran out of the door just like that, barefoot, in pajamas, in the middle of the night. So you're out in the street, you and your daughter. How old is your daughter at this time? Eight. She's only eight years old. You're out there barefoot, running for your lives. Yes. So I, I found, uh, you know, I lived in a complex. So the there was maybe like four doors down, but like the next building over, there were lights on. And I was there knocking on the door, ringing the doorbell. Please, please, please. I need to use your, t I need to use your phone. Thank goodness they had children. I, I said, you know, I'm sorry if I woke up your house. I saw that the lights were on. Can you please, you know, take my daughter with your kids? And, and she did. She did. And so the kids were, you know. God bless women. The sisterhood exists. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just got excited. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It does. It really does. <laughs> So I was like, please, I need to use your phone. I need to call the police. And I did. She did. She, I should have used the phone. I called the police. And after I hung up, I just fell to the floor. I fell to the floor and I was like sobbing and sobbing. I can't believe that my whole life in five minutes, 15 minutes, however many minutes it was, is now 100% different than what it was yesterday. I'm in this foreign space, a foreign state, a foreign everything. I don't know anything other than the school and the grocery store and this new doctor. I know no one. I have no inkling of friends, family, uh, laws, nothing. I sat there and waited for the police to show up crying, crying, crying. I, what it probably felt like five hours that it took the cops to show up and I'm explaining my story. And, you know, like during that time frame of waiting for them, I remember the neighbor asking me questions and I just kept saying, I don't know if I can have this baby. I don't know if I'm going to be able to raise this baby. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And, you know, I just was, I was just so distraught. I had, I had no idea if my baby was okay, let alone if I could raise it or not, you know? And so the police ends up showing up and I'm telling them everything that happened, you know, and then the one cop goes to, you know, where I was living at the time and, and they came back and they said, you know, I'm really sorry to say this to you, but it seems like this was almost premeditated. It was like, he knew where to hit you to not have marks because it was all behind my ear and to my head, not my face, but his, his hand being around my neck so firmly, I had the marks around my neck. And when they pulled my hair back, I already had blood blisters and purple welts that they were actually able to take pictures of at that time. So they ended up arresting him 
but I have no idea what the laws are where I come from. You know, that's not a major crime. You're going to be out later this, that same night, you know? So they were telling me, and I don't even know if it was a weekend. I, I don't think it was a weekend. So I was even more nervous that, you know, there's not a weekend for, for him to sit there until, you know, administration opens up. So they gave me the phone number and told me to call and to check in and gave me a couple of 1-800 numbers. And so I knew that I needed to get my daughter back home in a place where she didn't have the visual. She wasn't quite, quite clear as to everything that was going on. In my mind, I needed to get her back to normal as quickly as possible so I could deal with the phone calls, the appointments, the trauma, the drama, and everything without her being exposed. So very grateful that, you know, school's still in session at this time. And I, I ended up going back home that evening. I like literally put everything I could possibly push in front of the door. And I told her, listen, we need to have an escape route. If I say this code word, I need you to jump out the window and jump on the patio rooftop and go to that same door that we knocked on. Okay. And I can't explain it. She was like, okay, mom. Like it was no big deal. I didn't need to explain more. So I did not sleep. I had to figure out what was I going to do? How was I going to go about it? I had no money in the bank. I had no job. No job was going to hire me. I'm too embarrassed to call friends and family back home. You know, uh, you, you made your bed, you lie in it is the type of mentality and way that I understood life. And so I cried and cried and did so much research. What are my, what are my options? What can I do? I've never been in such a situation. And I took my daughter to school the next day. I checked myself into the emergency room that same. As soon as I dropped her off at school, I went straight to the emergency room. It was then that I was deemed high risk. I could not drive. I could not fly. I could not take a train. I was literally stuck. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get evicted. I can't pay the rent. I don't have, I don't have a job. I can't get a job right now. What in the world is going on? How am I going to do this? And I probably spent a close to a week or a couple of days, a few days crying in such confusion and disbelief. And I quickly got into the mirror and started yelling at myself. This is not how you deal with the problem. You have to pull yourself together and do what you know how to do. Go seek help. Go stand in line. Get in front of people. Go to social services. Figure it out. Like you came through a rough neighborhood. You grew up in a rough lifestyle. You've done this much with your eight-year-old daughter on your own already. You have to go out there and do what you need to do. So I literally yelled at myself and spoke to myself in a way that it was like, ride or die. You're either going to make it, you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. What's it going to be? You got one daughter that's looking up to you and another baby on the way. So I had to become the most resourceful individual that I knew. It wasn't, you didn't yell at yourself. You coached yourself. You let that strong part of you separate and, and talk to the part of you that was feeling so vulnerable. And you basically said, you've got this. You know how to do this. It's Yeah, it's going to be inconvenient, but you've had inconvenient before. And you thrived and prevailed. You coached yourself. Wow. Yeah, I will have to say yes. Back then, I had no clue what the heck I was doing. <laughs> I just knew. I'm just sitting here. I'm just, this is why I said my my audience needs to hear from you because this is so powerful. And of course, we need to hear the rest of the story. Okay, so now you've coached yourself into not just falling apart on the floor, although there's no way you're going to feel more vulnerable than being in advanced pregnancy in a new place where you don't know anybody, you have no money, you have no resources, and you have another child already dependent on you. Yeah. So what did you do next? Oh my gosh. So I stood in line. I stood in line at social services. I stood in line and asked for food stamps. I stood in line and asked if there was any shelters or emergency housing. I mean, literally I did everything that I could to see what assistance was out there because I could not, I was not going to be hired. I was literally doing a month and 
I went through so much during that time. I mean, the telephone went out. I had no gas for the car. I ended up being on foot. The day after I got food stamps and filled my refrigerator and freezer, my electricity went out. It was on a Friday. So there was no rehookup on a Saturday or a Sunday. I mean, you name it, I ended up facing it. And what I ended up doing was seeing, working with the police department, I got a restraining order. I took the restraining order to the apartment complex and said, listen, this is the situation. I need you to take my name off of the lease. This is everything that's going on. And they did. They did. They took my name off the lease and I was able to squat. I'm going to say the word squat for 45 days until I knew that I was, that the doors and the locks were going to be changed. And so as vulnerable, embarrassing, ashamed that I felt during that time, if I did not speak up and talk about my situation, I would not have received any sort of assistance or compassion or empathy or understanding. Like there's so many things that you feel are concrete, but your situation may be an exception. And if you're talking to the right person with the supporting documentation, you can and will be surprised by the outpour of help that's actually out there because the statistics show you how many of us have experienced or have exposure to domestic violence. And I have a motto today, and it's one word, next. Because if you can't do what I need you to do to help me, the next person will. And I'm going to keep on going to that next person relentlessly until I'm able to make sure that I have food to feed my children and that I'm in a safe position to navigate what I need to navigate. And it's not easy. It's not easy because while you're thinking about all the things that you have to do, you have this different perspective of life. And it's like, I had to now figure out how not to scare my eight-year-old, but how to make things a learning, um, uh, like what's it, a learning moment. So for example, when I'm getting ready at Walmart to get the baby, you know, seed and the crib and these different things, I'm, I'm playing this game with my daughter. Hey, did you see that, that, that guy with the hat on and the color shoes? Did you see how different the shoelaces were and you know, how their jacket had this cool emblem on the back. So now I'm teaching her situational awareness. I'm teaching her how to tell me what somebody looked like from head to toe, because in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, if she ever has to report something or say that something happened and she's a witness, I want her to be able to identify this individual by memory. What did they look like head to toe? So I started playing these games that were actually life teaching moments. It's a shame, you know, but Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear, I'm definitely including this part on the podcast. His book was written, I think, in 94 and it's still as relevant today as it ever was, if not more so. And when I wrote, but he says he loves me, I was thrilled because Gavin DeBecker actually got in contact with me because he said, you came at domestic abuse from an angle where you're probably going to be criticized because you're teaching women how to be safe from the very start. When you first start going out with someone, start paying attention to how they behave. And I was teaching the warning signs that someone's trying to lure you into an abusive relationship so that they would keep their awareness on, their wariness on when they first got involved. And of course, he knew something that he was right quickly happened. That kind of situational awareness you're teaching your daughter, you're not teaching her to be scared of everyone. You're teaching her to be aware of everyone. That's right. And to to understand that it's not all a Disney movie. That's right. You know, one of the problems with the fairy tales we have that are in animation form is that it's always very clear who the bad guy is because bad guy always looks sinister and they're very ugly. (laughs) So the one exception is the modern version of Beauty and the Beast where, you know, there's I've forgotten his name because it's been so long since I saw it, but they had 
the guy that she doesn't, that she rejects because he's so vain. He's very handsome, but he's very vain and superficial. So she rejects him, but he's not sinister or dangerous. The beast that she ends up with is actually the dangerous one. And the power of her love transforms him. If you look at throughout, first of all, the, the with the exception of brave, and even then you could tell it was tokenism, the princess is always really skinny, really beautiful. And anybody good is, is beautiful too. Anybody that's bad is, is physically unattractive. What are we teaching kids to look out for? What are we teaching our girls? I th- I'm just applauding you for teaching your daughter situational awareness because you said you made it a game so you didn't make her. Oh, you need to be afraid of everybody. I've seen people teach their children that too, and that is harmful. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with paying attention. My whole Unmasking the Abusive program is advocating stay wary until you know who this person is. Same with my new book coming out, Fascination with the Devil, Why Women Love Emotionally Dangerous Men. I talk about the fact that a lot of problems are caused by jumping too fast to get involved with somebody. Now, I I would bet you if we actually sat down and analyzed, which might be worthwhile off camera for us to do, analyze the warning signs that this partner had before you move. Oh my gosh. They are always there. So what I teach women is what the warning signs are, but even more than that, to not dismiss them because you like the guy or because he just bought you this or gave you this. And often if you have a lot on your head and you're confident the way you are, what you'll find is you'll get the hairy helpfuls or the guy that comes along that seems like he's going to lift some of your burdens. He's going to help take care of you. He's going to take care of your family. He's going to build a family with you. So you start getting so caught up in that, visualizing that, That's you start to build a future in your mind with this man. So in, in effect, you stop paying attention to what's going on in the present. And the present is where the warning signs are that you're now teaching your intuition to dismiss. Please, please, the gift of fear is something everybody should read. I'm I'm definitely going to. And, you know, that's what I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, I was very familiar with the verbal and the physical, you know, sexual side of abuse. You know, I was not versed in that covert, silent, narcissistic behavior. Because see, that's the difference. The actions of the verbal, financial, physical, those are all things that you can see and that are, you know, the numbers are there. It's kind of black and white, but that narcissistic, silent approach is very different. And I did not know that. So for me, two years dating, meeting mom, meeting brother, sister, cousins, friends, co-workers. I'm like, okay, this guy's checking off all the boxes. I did not know that it was like a checkbox. Make sure family's gone. Friends are gone. Money's gone. Like, yes, I was 100% dependent on this guy. And he wasn't even your husband. Right. So I want to tell you something. I don't care how modern you think the world is. When you go to people in authority and you're with somebody that you've done all this for and he's not your husband, even if it's subtle, they treat you differently. Yep. You know, it's really easy for him to tell them, I didn't marry her because she's just looking to live off me. And he can make up this whole thing. And these people don't know. You know, one of the things that came to my mind when you were talking about the sisterhood and, and people helping each other, because I've been that woman. And I can tell you, when I moved to the city I'm in right now, I brought a fridge with me from where I was living before. And so I put it on for sale. And a woman contacted me and said that she was going through a domestic abuse situation that was really critical, that she and her kids had been for the whole weekend without a refrigerator. And would I be willing to just give it to her? So I said, yes. She shows up and the way she's behaving and the way the kids are behaving, it's very evident that this is a scam. That she's just taking advantage. So you not only have to deal with people who blame victims, 
who say, you made your bed, you, you lie in it. You know, why did you stay when he did? You know, they're all ready to blame you for his behavior. That's right. Add to that the con artists on top of it. And people who deal with this issue a lot come across the whole range. So they come across the genuine victims that they do everything they can to help. But they also have to stand back for a minute to make sure a genuine victim is a genuine victim. Not marrying you was another type of of lack of support because it also meant that when you got there, you didn't have access to his resources to support yourself and your daughter like you would if he were your husband. You not only would be treated differently, but legally you had no protection. So he actually took you into a situation where you had no protection. And you know what? In hindsight, absolutely 100%. And in hindsight, I will say that because we were not married, that also worked a little bit in my favor because it was easier for me to take all parental rights away and for me to be the only person on the birth certificate to my child. I worked for the courts in California. That's where I'm from. And I know other states have done the same thing as California. So depending on where you were, if he's an abuser, you can still remove his parental rights, etc. The difference is if he's your husband and he's working, you would also have rights to a proportion of his income for both alimony and child support that you don't have when you're single. Wow. Which is probably the reason they do it and tell you it's just a piece of paper and we can be a family anyway. Okay. They know that it's not true. And even in Australia, where I am right now, People who live together and have children get together, the what they call de facto partner has a lot of rights, but they still treat you differently if you're married to the guy. And a lot of them aren't even aware they're doing it. So I definitely am not saying that marriage is the solution. I'm just saying that a guy who will have children with you will spend time with you. If you ask you to move to another state without a ring on your finger, That's a huge warning sign. Even if it's a warning sign of abuse, it's a warning sign of taking advantage. It's not giving value to you and your relationship if he's not willing to make it official. Power and control. But once you know the warning signs, just like when you were teaching your daughter about situational awareness and paying attention, especially paying attention to any men that are around you, (laughs) once you know what an abuser looks like, Once you know how they behave, once you know the the three different basic types that they go for, including the challenge, even if he seems nice, you are so wary, you're so emotionally uninvested. So when the warning signs happen, you're willing to acknowledge what you see because you're not, you haven't already started mentally and emotionally building a future with this man. Yeah, because a guy that would react like he did, he was just biding his time till he could get you in a situation where he could have his women on the side, where he could do whatever he wanted. And you just had to take it. You would have no options. Where are you going to go? Yeah, he didn't know who he was dealing with, obviously. (laughs) They tend to underestimate. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They get away with a lot. I mean, look at all of the nonsense that you and your daughter went through with this man. They are highly successful in many ways. But the more we get the information out there and see, it's not enough for me to tell people. Women need to hear the stories. And I would bet you three quarters of the women who listen to this podcast are women like you. They are not the pygmishas, you know. They are not desperate for a man. Any man is better than no man. They are not like that at all. Right. They are like, okay, if I want something, I have to figure out a way to get it for myself. Yeah. And I I used to have this uh, saying where it's like, oh, a man is dessert. Take it or leave it. It's all good either way. (laughs) You know? I like that. (laughs) So, yeah, you're right. You know, it, it is, there is this 
like mindset and belief system that when you're on the ball, when you have your stuff together, when you're doing these things, that you're attracting that same caliber of person. And so it's almost like, and especially if they're that, you know, career narcissist and they're like, oh yeah. And just, you know, saying yes to everything and admiring everything about you and you can't do anything wrong and everything that you like, they like. And like, yeah, now I know these are the flags as well. And I've also realized as we get older, we question our intuition. We will second guess and doubt our intuition. And that is one thing I have learned never to do again ever. Like, and I, and I'm saying this to the listeners too, like, you know, you, you're given instincts for a reason. And if you think about when you were a child and you were so courageous, it's because you didn't doubt yourself. So as an adult, don't start. (laughs) And also when you pick up the warning signs, don't dismiss them. I'm not trying to give women an out, but I'm giving an explanation, right? In fascination with the devil, I spent some time explaining why you have bad taste in men. And a lot of it has to do with social conditioning. Mm -hmm. From the time we're little girls, we're told that you can transform a bad man into a good one if you love him enough, if you're savvy enough, if you do ABC. But you're also told you're rewarded for ignoring your intuition. Let's say somebody steals something from you or they hit you. If you don't hit them back, and you say, that's not nice, you get a pat on the head and a reward, or somebody's mean to you, you're nice to them in return, give something you want to somebody else, let them have it instead. Oh, aren't you just the best little girl? But you're teaching other people that you are not of value. You're you're teaching yourself to let go of not only your intuition, but your critical thinking ability that teaches you flow on effects. Because if you allow somebody to get away with mistreating you, it's almost 100% sure they're going to do it again. Yes, yes. They're conditioning you to ignore that part of you that says, no, you cannot have that. Don't be like that. Nobody will like you if you're like that. They don't teach boys to be that way. Good parents teach their boys to be responsible and kind and generous. They do not teach them to be selfless. Right. They don't teach them that everybody counts except you, that you you aren't rewarded for never going for what you want, for giving it to everybody else. Nobody does that to boys. Mm -hmm. So when they do that to girls, our intuition still works, but we've trained ourselves to ignore it. I can't count the number of women who come to me and said, when we first started going out, I was really uncomfortable when he did A, B, or C. When I said, oh, that makes me uncomfortable, he had such a good explanation for it that I didn't pay attention to what I was feeling. Yeah, I know. That's why I have Ego Garcia, because... I mean, I know that it's not everything, but it's at least, you know, in my For me, I believe that it's a a few layers, you know, a few layers of security and safety and well, and that's, that's post-traumatic growth, right? That's what I love to talk about is PTG. So many people are familiar with PTSD and not enough people have been told what PTG is and what it is. And PTG is post-traumatic growth, and it was founded in the early 90s by two doctors, Dr. Calhoun and Dr. Tadechi. And basically, in my layman terms, it is when you go through something so mentally traumatic and emotional that when you go through the journey of recovery and you come out of that journey, you are now a stronger, wiser individual from that trauma you experienced. And you're able to level up your coping skills to the point that you're no longer being consumed by that traumatic um, event. And you're no longer identifying yourself with that traumatic event. Instead, 
again, you're stronger, wiser, and you're giving back and sharing that wisdom and that strength with other people that you know are going through it as well. Whether you know them or not, you just know that people are going through it. So you're giving back. And to me, post-traumatic growth is almost instinctive in most individuals. If we've all gone through a piece of trauma in our life, one way or another, and how we came out of it and what we're doing from it is proof in the pudding. And there's so many of us that don't even recognize it. And it's like, it's almost the placebo. Once you learn that there is this thing and it's instinctive and you've already gone through it, it can re- really help eliminate and intercept that self-sabotaging belief system of I'm never going to get through it. I just don't know how to pull myself out of it. It's like nine times out of 10, you already have. You just haven't recognized it yet. First of all, two things. We're going to have to go back to your story or none of my listeners are going to listen to me again (laughs) because it's so interesting. I will get so many angry emails. So, but before I do that, I wanted to ask you, thinking of post-traumatic growth, because I'm right there with you, we are in a time where everybody's trying to outdo themselves, identifying with victimhood. Mm. And I see post-traumatic growth as being the exact opposite of that. Yes. So you are not identifying yourself even as a survivor. It is something you experienced and you chose to let it contribute to your growth. It's a chapter in my life. Just a chapter. It is not who you are. When you say I am a victim of, I am even, I am a survivor of. And I see that mindset now where everybody is being constantly reminded of what was taken from them, how they were hurt, how their people were hurt, all in the back, how you were hurt. Hmm. And every group of people I've seen that have looked in that direction, looked behind, talk about, you know, constantly being reminded of what they lost. They progress a little bit and no further. It's like it really inhibits them from being able to say, what did I learn from that? It keeps them from being able to say, to actually get some insight from other groups and other people who've also experienced a similar journey. No two people in the world have had the exact same journey. No. There's like a division between those of us who recognize not only what happened in the past, but that we still have some things to do. And those who only want to focus on the struggle and the victimization and the the pain and, and try to convince themselves and everyone else that it's never going to get better. That would be like somebody telling you when you were in the midst of this of this struggle, this journey, oh, this is just ruined the rest of your life. You're never going to get better. You're never going to have a healthy relationship with a man. Your daughter won't either because she saw this and it's just permanent. Not only is it not helpful, it's not true. No, he was, he got arrested and he stayed in prison. I, he was held until the day of court, which I was asked by the DA if I was going to testify. I said, yes. And it was, this is to me, this is a huge no in the system, which is where when you have the person on, on the stand to share the story and testify why they brought him in, and literally he came in his his jail suit and his you know the the shackles on his on his ankles and why they let him stop and look right at me while I'm on the stand and you hear my voice how I am and I'm so sure about what I'm going to say and I'm adamant about this is a zero tolerance yada 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 and as soon as I was made eye contact with him the voice that you're hearing right now shriveled like this and I was looking down and I got all of a sudden my voice was taken away from me and I was like I'm trying to talk to myself like get your voice speak up what's going on with you and I couldn't I was literally like vocally paralyzed and I'm just so thankful that the judge said I see this all the time 
So that meant to me today, looking back, that means they knew that when you bring the offender, the attacker in, this is what happens. The person folds. So why are we still doing this? Either way, I that you know, they had the folder, they saw the pictures, I gave my verbal report, my deposition prior to going on the stand, and he was sentenced. And then of course I signed up for all of the programs that are available that keeps you in touch with their parole officer that keeps you in touch of any movement that happens within the jails and all that kind of stuff, you know, and believe it or not, a double attempted homicide, he only served two years and was, it was supposed to be four years, but he did half the time and was still let out early. And, you know, I couldn't help it, but to think that he's over there lying in a, in a bed with a roof over his head. He, food, water, electricity. He's not having to worry about anything. And here I am out here, a single mom with nothing, a brand new baby, a, you know, a, an adolescent. And I'm like, how do I do this? How do I do this? Where's the help for us? And so I had to figure out my whole entire life in 37 days. And so I ended up finding a room to rent for all three of us. And as soon as my baby got his first set of shots and was able to get into a daycare system, that's exactly what I had to do because I had to get back on my feet. There was no other option. It was me and that's it. So there was a time where there was homelessness and a time where we were all renting just a room, us three. And it was a, it was a gradual journey of getting back on my feet, being able to afford rent. And, you know, thank goodness for WIC where I was able to get, you know, the, the formula and, and a little bit of assistance, but you know, there's this, there's this gray zone where I was, I was literally making $35 over the limit of what would have gotten me benefits. So I'm making $35 over the limit, which then makes me not have $500 worth of help. So it's like, hold on a second. Is it worth just working, you know, at a low paying job so I can get this assistance or I don't want to live off the system all my life. I want to be able to create my own life. So it was, it was very chaotic. And, you know, I also had to stop school and stop everything and say like, oh my gosh, career, what career? This is survival. I need a job that I know is going to pay this much an hour so I can pay all the bills and still be able to, you know, come and go. And it just became... I became a very uh, independent woman to the point where it was almost uh, dehabilitating because I didn't want to trust anybody. I didn't want to leave, let anybody in. I had to trust myself and nobody else. And that extreme independence I learned along the way is a trauma-driven response. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a little sabotaging, but I had to protect, provide, and and continue without knowing anybody and without having, you know, friends and family that I do know helping and supporting. It was literally me, myself, and I, and thank goodness after, you know, uh, how long was it? Eight months and over a thousand phone calls that I finally got in touch with a real advocate that knew the legislative laws, that knew the legislative programs that were backed by funding, that understood what options I truly had and what programs are actually available. And as soon as I was paired with her, I mean, by this time I was already, you know, out of the environment. I was already in the room. I was already, you know, kind of getting my life back together, but still struggling on how to navigate. And thank goodness for that advocate, because my goodness, she's the one that helped me make sure that the name was off the birth certificate, that I was able to, you know, serve him while he was in jail, that I was able to take care of all these legalities that I had no idea even existed because I was too busy worrying about lights, food, diapers, you know, getting from point A to point B. And it just, it, it, it became a long journey. And I'll fast forward to where my daughter was getting ready to leave the nest in her twenties. And she said, you know, mom, I really appreciate you being helicopter mom, you were always there. I couldn't get away with anything, even though the circumstances, you know, rendered your, your, you know, your way of doing things. She said, you were emotionally unavailable. Mm. Yep. That's what I said. <laughs> my eyes were like popping back out of my skull because I'm thinking to myself, like, do you have 
you have no idea the sacrifices, the, the protection, the privacy, the safety, the everything that I have like done your entire life to make sure you had a childhood and that you were not tormented behind all this. We did not live in fear. I choose not to do that, you know? And it was like, I, but I had to accept what she was saying because with me being so rigid, so helicopter mom, so uh, such a tight ran ship because everything, like every minute needed to be accounted for. I went, I ended up going back to school. I graduated with my bachelor's degree while my kids were in school. And it was like, I had to do that. So for me, I believe that that extreme independence had a lot to do with not being emotional because my emotions had no time, space, or value and what I needed to get done. When like when people say separate your emotions from business, like that's what I had to do. But in that family setting, which was very unfortunate for my daughter because she felt that I that I was an emotional void for her. And, you know, since then we've worked on it. We have a fantastic relationship now. We've, we've gone through, you know, plenty of exercises, the five love languages. And it's been, you know, I, when I was trying to give her my loving, the way that she receives it and the language she, you know, appreciates it in, I was accused of being sarcastic. And I'm like, okay, girl, listen, you want this or you don't want this? Cause it's easy for me to go back to being like unemotional, but Yeah, give me a chance here, you know? Can I say, I'm just glad you made it through and didn't just get through, it sounds like you're thriving and helping other people. So please tell my listeners where they can reach you. And thank you, A. Garcia, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking. So you can always go to confrontingdv.org. That is the nonprofit website. And we're always looking for volunteers, contributors, sponsors, anything that you can do to help towards our mission and helping, you know, save lives and challenge policies. And if you're looking for any type of coaching, I do have a coaching business. It's called Be Your Incredible Self. And it's that is exactly what it is. Be Your Incredible Self after... All that you have gone through because we all do want to be a better version of ourselves and our loved ones deserve it. Thank you for having me. Email me and let me know what you think. I'm at unmaskingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dina McMillan.